Hey everybody, Pierre Quinn here, and you're listening to episode 127 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Michelle Silverthorne. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Inclusion Nation and author of the new book, Authentic Diversity, How to Change the Workplace for Good. Before we jump into that conversation with Michelle, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this Leading Wild Green movement. I mean, you listen to the podcast, you share it, you review it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been such a pleasure having you on this journey. And, and if this is your first time, welcome. Thanks for hanging out with us. This is the place where we help leaders on their journey. And we've had some amazing interviews on this podcast. We got some amazing interviews coming up that you don't want to miss. Some quality stuff, some amazing guests. So stay tuned for what's coming here on the podcast. And man, I know you're going to enjoy these conversations that we're preparing for you. Uh, today is no exception to that. I know you're really going to enjoy today's conversation. My guest today is Michelle Silverthorne. Michelle Silverthorne is founder and CEO of Inclusion Nation, that it works with Fortune 500 companies, tech startups, nonprofits, and universities to deliver authentic, inclusive spaces for success. A recognized organizational diversity expert and speaker, she has written extensively on the topic. She is a TEDx speaker with an awesome TEDx talk and author of the new book, Authentic Diversity, How to Change the Workplace for Good. Here's my featured conversation with Michelle Silverthorne. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast by Michelle Silverthorne. Michelle, thanks so much for being my guest today. Hey, Pierre. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I have been trying to speed read through your book, Authentic Diversity, and I, and I love your story and your background. And I want to take it back because I was snooping around your LinkedIn page, too. That's what I do before all of my all of my podcasts. Talk to me about Princeton and the Princeton experience and then the uh, U of M experience. Oh, my goodness. So I um, and I, like I, I found out like like your spouse, I grew up in Jamaica and I grew up in Trinidad and I lived there my whole life. And then. When I was 17, my sister had already gone to college in the States, like um, a different college in, in uh, upstate New York. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And so I looked at a whole bunch of different schools. I traveled to a whole bunch of different schools and I applied to a whole bunch of different schools, got in. And Princeton was one that gave me the most money. And that was the reason I went. And I always tell people when I do my talks and speeches and we talk about, you know, you know, where you're looking for your black talent, a lot of them can't afford the schools that you want to look at. So you need to start looking at schools that they can afford to go to and they're able to pay for. So luckily I went to Princeton. Um, I had no idea how strong the name was. I had no idea how strong the alumni network was before I went there. What I knew about Princeton is that they gave me the most money so I could pay to go to school. And that was what, you know, that was the reason I showed up. I loved it. I loved Princeton. I loved every second. Um, and you'll read a story in my book about, you know, going to the eating clubs and realizing that that wasn't the space for me. 
But the reason I loved Princeton was that there was a space for me. You know, it was with the various groups I had, with the various organizations I was a part of, I was able to find different spaces at that school where I could belong. So I was there for four years. I traveled the world while I was there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hustled a lot of money off of some departments so you can give me money so I could travel around. So I worked in Geneva. I worked in Peru. My mother was living in Botswana at the time. So I went there too. I was in Kazakhstan. Um, and then when I went to all these places, I got to travel around a lot when I was there. So that was great. And then after Princeton, I went back home to Trinidad for a year, Mm. um, did that whole trying to figure out where I wanted to go with my life. And while I was at school, what I met with a lot of human rights lawyers had told me, you should be a lawyer, because if you want to enforce rights, if you want to change laws, if you want to defend the people who have voices but are not being listened to, Mm -hmm. um, that's the work that you can do. And so I had applied to Michigan law after I left Princeton. I mean, before I left Princeton, I took a year off, went home, um, stayed with my family for a bit. And then I went to school and then I went to Michigan on the very, very first day of school. And this is what I talk about in my, my TED talk. I met my husband and so we got married and we lived in New York for a bit. We lived in Chicago. I went to practice law and, you know, that and that was pretty much the journey to where I am right now, practicing law, going to work for the Illinois Supreme Court and then starting my company. And there's a lot of other things on the way, but it started because I was able to go to a school that had the budget to be able to send me to different countries so I could see what the world was like. And if I hadn't done that, then I mean, you know, my life would have been a lot different. I had a professor in undergrad talk to me about this idea. His analogy was like the buffet. Mm -hmm. And he would say, you know, you ever go to the buffet and you see someone eating like 10, 12 plates and you wonder why the buffet doesn't kick them out. You know, at this time I was on academic probation, so I wasn't thinking about these existential questions, Uh, but I kind of bit into what he was saying. And I said, so why? He said, because people like you who go to the buffet and fill up on like root beer and pink lemonade, you actually end up paying for them. Mm-hmm. because you don't maximize the opportunity that's, that's given to you. So I'm hearing that's you why say- you never know. eat rice. Never <laughs> eat rice at the buffet. Why are you wasting your time, man? But yeah, that's it, right? So, so talk about that, that experience. And, and some, some people who go to school, especially coming from where they come socioeconomically, the picture of their worldview, new, used to newfound freedom, mm-hmm. and the, the distraction sometimes that the collegiate environment can be- Right. Um, without leveraging like the incredible opportunities to travel the world and do some amazing things. You know, and I, I, what I've liked about what colleges have been doing so far, and I I always tell people, this is the difference. I don't know where you went. Where'd you go to school at? I went to a a small school, Andrews university in Michigan. You mean the school that I live down the street from right now? You're kidding me. I live in, I live in uh, Bridgman, Michigan. (laughs) We're literally around the corner from Andrews. Absolutely. um, half the people I know live in Berrien Springs. It's so funny. All right, we gotta talk about that later. Look at that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so Andrews is not as I mean, it's a Seventh Day Adventist school. It's not a, it's not a historically black college. What right. I've loved about HBCUs and historically black colleges is that they know, like, they hire administrators who know that folks are gonna come in and they don't have these experiences and they mm-hmm. don't know what's going on out there. So they need to show them and tell them, take this from the buffet, take this from the buffet, and guide them. Yeah. When you go to a predominantly white school and you are a marginalized minority or you are a black student, you don't necessarily have access to those people who understand, 
you know, Michelle didn't have exposure to this as a child. Let me make sure that she understands that here are some degrees that she could take. Here are some classes that she could take. That guidance, that that unwritten manual that you don't have access to in college, which is all mm-hmm. a bunch of first generation kids as well. But then you also go into the workplace and you still don't have access to that manual. So when I tell people when you are working toward equity, you got to get someone to guide you through that buffet line. You need to put people in place who are going to say, this is what you should be thinking of. And here's what you should be considering. And this is what you should look at. Otherwise, I mean, that's what equity is all about. Otherwise, you're just trying to say everyone starts off at the same playing field. We're all at the same starting line. Y'all go for it. Good luck. And here's the same advice I'm going to give to everybody else. It does not work. You mentioned equity in your book, Authentic Diversity. How how do you frame what diversity is? Mm -hmm. You know, and you talk about the equity piece that's essential to our conversations on our diversity that we often leave off of the conversation, but kind of frame for us um, explaining what diversity is and the relationship between diversity and equity. So for me, there's three parts to it, right? There's actually, I mean, for me, there's four parts. And the thing with diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, people are going to change terms. They're going to say new names, but the concepts are still similar, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, diversity broadly is all the different identities that we have, all those different identities. When you bring them in, you have all these identities, whether, wherever they are, whoever Mm -hmm. they are, they're Mm -hmm. all there, right? Inclusion is making sure that each of those identities is allowed to succeed, right? You feel like you belong. You feel like you're a part of the team. You feel like your values are included in the work that you do and included in the workplace that you are at. You have a culture that has allowed your values, even though they are different from whatever culture was designed, which a lot of our cultures were designed around white men, Mm -hmm. even though your values are different, even though your background's different, even though your story is different, we are still creating systems that allow you to succeed here. And those systems are what I call equity, creating those systems and looking at those barriers and not just looking at barriers and saying, oh, well, that's just the way it's always been. You look at barriers and say, why? Why are they this way? Who built them? Who is benefiting from them? Why are we not changing them? You know, a school, again, is a really great example of it, right? So if you go to a university... And you think about how we orient freshmen, what door we put freshmen in, what groups that we assign them to, you know, the large lectures that we put people in. That's great. And it might work for some people, but it's clearly not working for everybody. So instead of just saying, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep on giving you as many tools as I can to make sure that you can access those systems. What I also want you to do while you're doing those tools is look at the systems and say, why? And then what can we change about them? Because some of these systems, especially universities, were designed 400 years ago when people like me weren't even allowed in the room. So you gotta change the systems. And when we change the systems, that for me is what real equity is. And the goal is to create a space where people can belong. And when, because they belong, they have safety in knowing that they can succeed there. And that, I mean, if if I could just, this is my dream world and I want to work to get there. Working with uh, professional standards for so many years, like, mm-hmm. what was it about that experience that made you say, you know what, I like this job, or there's some things that I'm learning from this experience. However, I, I, I need to I need to start the own, my own business and right. work independently so I can work in this in the way that I'm wired to work. What did you, what what was it about that experience that made it easier for you, or made you think, okay, I should transition from this space? 
That's a great question. And for me, what made it easier were the champions that I had. You know, my boss was a champion. We had a board that were champions. They were champions of diversity. Our judges, they took a lot of risks and they put diversity at the centerpiece of the work that they were doing with the Illinois Supreme Court. And I thought that was really great. And also I had clients, like, well, I didn't have clients. I had the people that I worked with, the law firms and the bar associations and the organizations and the schools. And doing that, I learned a lot about what they were not seeing and the conversations that we were not having. So many people, and you know, whoever's listening to this, if you're hoping to start your own organization, make sure you got your people in your back pocket before you start out. Make sure you know who your clients are going to be before you start out. Make sure you have an idea of where you want to go when you start out. I didn't have any of that, right? I mean, I'm not giving all this advice, like yeah. in retrospect. But for me, what I had was a good solid base of people who I knew wanted to listen to a message of change. They wanted to not be told, okay, here are all the different ideas when it comes to equity. And here's, you know, here's what a bias might be. And mm-hmm. here's how we're falling short. What they wanted are solutions. And so living for seven years, you know, first being a lawyer, still a lawyer, I still pay those bar dues, but being <laughs> a lawyer and then working for the court, realizing what it means to work in a solutions driven industry in an industry that says you can do all the talking that you want. But at the end of the day, if people are just leaving and they're aware of something, but they haven't changed their behaviors, they haven't shifted their perspective, they haven't taken actions that would lead to success, then we haven't succeeded. So working in professional standards, trying to figure out if we put rules in place, then will folks adopt their behaviors to adopt to those rules, right? And that's what we realize. And that's what I still do. So what I'm telling folks is, If you put these new rules in place, if you put the new systems in place, people will change their behaviors. You may not change everyone's hearts and minds, and that's fine. But the reason we put on seatbelts when we go in cars isn't because my heart and mind was changed to know that seatbelts were important. It's because there was a law and many laws put into place that I adopted my behavior to meet. And now it's automatic. And that is what I think is important about when I was doing that work, realizing that you create these systems, people will adapt their behavior to meet them. I love the the tone of your writing in your mm. book, uh, Authentic Diversity. Frame for us, and you talk about this in, in the, the beginning of the book, what's happening when, when someone picks up the phone to call you? Like when you <laughs> get the phone call, what are, what are one of 10 or you know, oh 50 scenarios as, that could be going on? I mean, how much time do we have? Like half an hour left? Okay, let's just do this. So, and what's interesting, and we can talk about this later too, about the difference between the phone calls before May 25th and the phone Mm -hmm. calls after May 25th, right? Before George Floyd and after George Floyd. Um, But typically what happens is that it's a call from either CEO or the head of HR, right? Sometimes it's the head of DEI, but um, a lot of companies don't have DEI heads. They have a lot more have them now. But typically for me, it's the CEO or the head of HR in that team. And why are they calling is because there is a problem. So whatever that problem is, it's the problem where they um, they kept they have a report that comes out. This is really popular, right? Mm-hmm. Their tech report comes out, their diversity report comes out, and it's really bad. Or someone sent an email, and it was a really terrible racist email. Or someone um, filed a lawsuit, and because of that lawsuit, they need to figure out what exactly are the restrictions and the structures that we are putting into place to change it. That's like the emergency responses, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the leaders who are doing it because they um, they want to do something, because they listened to a session. This is a lot in the last four months. Because they heard something, they listened to something, because their peers are doing it. 
because they genuinely believe that there is room for change and there is room for difference. They want to try and do it. So you have the emergency people, you have the, honestly, the PR performative folks, and then you have the folks that are really trying to do something better and trying to make a difference, but they don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. And so all of those groups, what I always ask them is, why are you doing this? Because I want them to figure yeah. out what their why is now. And then when I'm done working with them, I want to figure out what their why is after that. Because your why at the beginning may be the same as your why at the end, but I'm sincerely hoping that when we are done working, you realize that the only why that really matters is that this is the right thing to do. Hmm. And you can do all yeah, the business good. case and all the profit margins and all the numbers that you want. And I think that that's important. And we can talk about that. But at the end of the day, you are doing this because people matter and because you are a leader of people and you want to be a leader who leaves a legacy behind that the people in your organization felt that they were listened to, that they were heard and that they could succeed. And that is what a leader should do. Man, we you got you got so much here. I got so many questions written down on on this sheet. I got to ask you this question because Mm -hmm. it's a popular, popular news headline uh, in the recent cycle. Uh, the former former CEO of American Express said, uh, I can't remember his name, but he expressed this idea that there is not enough, there's not a good pipeline mm, to attract pipeline. and retain yeah. diverse talent. On the other hand, we have the, C, the current CEO of Wells Fargo saying there's just not enough good black talent out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when you when you heard that working in this DEI work, when you when you heard that from uh, the Wells the Wells Fargo CEO, as as a professional as a person who is steeped in this work, what what were some of the things that you were thinking, and what were some of the questions that you felt like you know, his team or the people around him should have been asking? Where was his team when he said that? That was the first <laughs> question. Where was your communications person? Where's your PR person? Wells Fargo has a really great DNI team. Why were you not listening to them? Because they would have told you that that was not the right thing to say. Uh, and he apologized for it and, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. when I hear people say that, I'm actually going to take a different tack. A lot of people are saying that there's a lot of black talent. There is. Yeah. But your problem isn't that you can't get black talent. Wells Fargo recruits and hires a pretty diverse pipeline of people, right? Mm-hmm. They bring in a really diverse at the entry level. They bring it in. Mm-hmm. But what you're telling me is that your pipeline is broken. It's not broken. It's broken inside your company. That really diverse, talented people that you that pool that you brought in, they aren't getting promoted. They aren't getting yeah. the good work. They aren't getting the assignments. They're not getting the mentors. They are not having access to the systems. So if you want to say your pipeline is broken, that's great but it's broken inside your own company. And you need to take responsibility as a leader for that. You need to take responsibility that you are not training, you are not mentoring, you are not giving the work, you are not training managers to give the work, you are not allowing for inclusive feedback, you are not running inclusive teams. And most of all, you are not, absolutely not doing the work to retain your black professionals. So, Maybe he is talking about the pipeline at the manager and leadership level, right? Maybe that's the one that's broken because it can't be the entry level because we see the numbers. It's Mm -hmm. really diverse at the entry level. But let's say he is talking about hiring some like, you know, senior level managers or senior level directors. His pipeline might be broken because his pipeline and that of his team is predominantly white men. And so because that's his network and because that's his peer group, when he looks at his peer group, he looks for peer hiring. And when his hiring team looks for peer hiring, because the people who are in that peer network are also going to be predominantly white men, Mm -hmm. their pipeline and their networks and who they're hiring from is going to be predominantly white men. 
So if you then said, okay, what I need to do is to be intentional about expanding that network, not just like, is my recruiting team going to send me like three black professionals? Am I as an individual going to look at my peers and other organizations at the same level I am and try to track down where are they? And then am I going to reach out to them and say, you know, please, I get to know them. I get to talk to them. I get to invest in them. I get to show them what they can benefit from me because I don't just want this to be a one-way benefit. And therefore I get access to their networks. You know, you know, the average white American has 91 white friends and nine friends of color. Your pipeline isn't broken. The pi- There is black talent out there. It's just, you can't find them. Hmm. And even if you can't find, I got to tell you, and I will just say this. They are applying to your jobs, but your your resumes are rejected, being rejected. Their names are too black. Their experience is too black, or their experience isn't particularly the one that you want. It isn't exactly that very specialty. But what you are doing then is that you are giving them a higher standard than you would the people in your in-group. And so there is a whole talk on bias that we can do that mm-hmm. exists as well. So there's a lot that's to unpack there. But at the end of the day, I hear this all the time. We don't want to lower the bar. We, we can't find any qualified black candidates. We, we, we have done all the work. No, you haven't. And we haven't been able to find anyone. What you want to do is you want to hire and you want to hire fast and you want to fill it with the people that you already know and who you're comfortable with. And if we keep doing that, then we're not going to change anything. You mentioned in the higher education space, the, the fact that systems rules were established so long ago, hundreds of years ago. Let's talk about these old, old rules of diversity and inclusion mm. that you talk about in your book and, and help some of us out who don't know, you know, we're, we're coming into systems the first time in a work environment, not used to the culture. Maybe we're coming from an HBCU or coming from right. uh, outside of the United States. And we're trying to get used to this corporate life culture. And we don't even know what the old rules are to, to push mm-hmm. back against. Can you, can you help frame that for us? And from my perspective, I, so I, when I originally drafted this book, it was like 600 pages. I'm like, no one's going to read a 600 page <laughs> book on DEI, right? So I, I cut it down to 180, but I also cut it down to, I had 20 old rules and 20 new rules. And it was just, it was just a behemoth, right? Mm-hmm. But I cut it down to five old rules and five new rules. And so my old rules are pretty simple. You just make the business case for diversity. You just talk about how people are widgets. And if they are widgets, then if you hire this many people, this is your profit margins. This is what it will Mm. be. We have been making the business case for diversity for decades. Like, if you don't think that there is a business case, I can show you a thousand studies that show that there is. But we're making the wrong business case, right? We're looking at companies that have already done those cultural shifts, that have already done that inclusion aspect of it, that have already done the work to create equitable systems and then are reaping the benefits of it. If you haven't done that work, and then you say, if I, you know, if I, if I go out and I hire, you know, two, gosh, because only two, if I only hire two incoming black candidates in my class, and then I'm not seeing that automatic increase in profit margins, that that team dynamics, all those great benefits, then clearly I failed, right? Hmm. But you're not having done the work to make sure that you are seeing the different perspectives, including the different values, recognizing different cultures, making sure that their voices are heard and valued. So yeah, I mean, okay, if you want to make the business case and say that the only reason to do diversity is so I can make more money, that's fine, but you're going to fail. And that's why that's an old rule of diversity. Second one, a lot of us have been to unconscious bias trainings. I feel like mm-hmm. I mean, if you are in a company, if you're in a corporation, if you haven't yet, you're probably going to go to one very soon. <clears throat> if you sit through this bias training, 
And all they tell you is that bias is fine and it's universal and everyone has it. And they talk to you like you are five. Do me a favor and raise your hand and tell them that bias hurts. And it hurts and it cuts people down and it keeps them from success. Because unless we are honest about what bias really does and how it is not just baked into into us as individuals, but into us as institutions, then we are not going to change a thing. That is old rule number two. Old rule number three. This is what I've been doing for four and a half. I mean, I've been doing it for two and a half years, but really for the last four months, you got to talk about race. If we are going to avoid talking about how race plays a role, whether it's historically or currently in institutions, because I am a black person, I am seen as less competent. I am seen as aggressive. I am seen as loud. My tone is policed because of all of that. I am seen as the affirmative action candidate. I am seen as a token. If you're not willing to engage with that, then again, we're not going to change anything. And if you also aren't willing to do those self-reflective work, looking at your own networks, looking at your own schools, your neighborhoods in which you live, the friends in which you have, the life that you have surrounded with, with. And if you are a white person, when you look at that and you see that it's predominantly white, I need you to interrogate that. Why is that the case? How did it happen? And how does it affect how I see the world? So that's old rule number three. Four, privilege. Easiest one in the world, right? Great word. Everyone loves the word privilege. Absolutely not. But its question (laughs) is, and this is where I talk about Princeton, and this is where I talk about the eating clubs, the idea that everyone starts from the same starting line. That's not true. Just like what we said at the beginning, you know, some people are already way ahead yeah, because of how they yeah. grew up, because of the lives they live, because of what they know about the institutions, because of their race, they are because of their gender, because of their identity. They are already far ahead of the starting line. And then some of us are just tying our shoes. And we are trying to learn about these norms and these cultural values that were not part of who we were. But we want to learn because we want to succeed, but we're still playing catch up the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the fourth thing. The last rule is very simply, your culture does not include everyone. And this was the title of my TED Talk, which is, we are not a melting pot. We are not a melting pot. And, you know, we have so many companies, I have so many clients who want to talk about how inclusive their culture is, look at all these cultural celebrations they have, and that's great. But I want to know how does that impact the work? How does it impact who people are and they allowed to succeed and the talents that they can bring to the table? So your culture is not a melting pot. It is not. It was never meant to be. It was meant to reflect the values of the men who built this workplace. And because of that, unless we are willing to change all of those old rules and replace them with new ones, then we aren't going to change anything. And that's what I try and say over and over again. You you make this case that you know the hard work you know, really has to begin at the top, but we see a mm-hmm. lot of grassroots, you know, if I work for an organization and, and there, there are those of us who come from a, a diverse ethnic background, whatever our, our label or term or category is, and we recognize something is not right in this space, that right. it needs to change. How do we, how do we close the gap between where we are and the org chart and the decision makers at the top who, who mm-hmm. really need to buy into the reality that something needs to change before the change can actually happen. How do we, how do we work through that? Absolutely. You know, one of, one of the things, it's been a very hard year, but one of the things that has given me hope is every single trading that I have done over the last four months. Um, and they are all like all company wide trainings, everyone in the company, or at least, you know, some of them that have really large companies, at least everyone in the biggest department shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the leader who opens up that training and it's the leader who speaks. And when I trip and when I talk to them or I ask them, 
what I ask them to do is, can you please talk about why this matters? Because it gives them the chance to think about why should this matter? Because at the end of the day, where you are in the org chart says a lot about how much power you have and what your mm-hmm. platform can be. And if you are the person who is constantly speaking up about racism and anti-racism and bias, I mean, let's be real, like there is going to be that pushback and then there is going to be that, well, you can't say that here. We don't talk politics here, right? We are all <laughs> friends here. We don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable here. So I have really enjoyed the fact that I have leaders here who are willing to stand up and say, yes, we do. If your company as thousands of companies did over the past four months, wrote a statement, issued a statement that said that they are committed to black lives. They are committed to anti-racism. They are committed to inclusion. There's your end. Because you now have a public statement that your organization has made that has said that they are committed to this work. A lot of the people who made those statements do not understand what that work entails. So if you would like to position yourself as someone who, by the way, you make, I mean, just because we are minorities does not mean that we understand how we can organizational change, right? So go do some mm-hmm. research and do some work mm-hmm. on it. So, but you can do that because now you have an in, now you have access to do that. Now you can talk to your manager. Now you can talk to your director and say, you know, our organization said that they were committed to this. Let me talk about some ways that I would like to participate in this. You don't have to. Some suggestions that you might have, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Or some ways that my life has been affected because of the way that we were before, Right. So if you can frame it in that narrative, in the narrative of we made this commitment, what are we going to do next? Then please do. Also understand that a lot of companies are asking a lot of their minority employees to do way more work than they are being compensated for. Mm -hmm. They are asking them to do all the work for the employee resource groups and review statements and hire consultants, and they are not being compensated for it. So again, if you're being asked to do this work, Start writing down all the things that you're being asked to do. And then when it comes to your review, I want you to share that with your leader and say, these are all the extra things I would like to do. I would like to figure out how I can add this to my job description. And then what I can do about my compensation base because of this. So those are just some ideas that I have. But I mean, I have a lot more, but it's hard. Um, And we need allies. We need real allies. We need accomplices, not just people who say, I'm here, good luck, but who actually stand up and do the work with us. Michelle, I'm feeling like this should have been like a two-hour masterclass <laughs> instead of like 45 podcasts. Uh, but it's a, it's some pieces that I, that I want to touch before before we we run out of time. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about this disparity that I noticed, and I might be the only one. And as an expert here, you can help guide me in this. When COVID hit, I got an email from nearly every organization that I've done business with. That I can't for the past however many years mm-hmm. I've been on their email list and they said, COVID is here. We're doing our best. I got an email from, you know, the CEO or, you know, whoever was in charge. And then we hit all of these racial tensions in America that ballooned into to the major headlines that captured the news cycle uh, for days on end, especially with what happened with George Floyd. And for m- I did not hear from those same organizations. Mm. And to me, that was, that was interesting. And, you know, I didn't know what was, were they wrestling with? I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to get involved. Mm. It's not my fight. I don't agree. Why do you feel like when it was COVID, it was this rush, we have to say something. And then when the headlines shift and we're talking about uh, human rights, civil rights, equity, diversity, fair treatment, being recognized as a person, 
do we not see that, you know, one of the colloquialisms that we use is I need you to keep that same energy. Yes. Uh, what, why, why do you feel keep the same energy? Why do yeah. you feel like that same energy wasn't kept uh, when we were talking about racial ch- tensions, especially in the light of what happened with George Floyd? And I want to take that extra step, too, because, I mean, if you do this diversity, equity, inclusion work, you also got the case where before when COVID hit, everything was canceled. DEI professionals were furloughed, right? And then after COVID hit, you had some kind of every company, but a lot of companies were saying, like, okay, we are recommitting to this, right? Mm-hmm. But then Brianna Taylor's verdict came back. And I didn't see those same companies who said that they were committed to Black Lives Matter commenting on that. Hmm. So there is also that other step of it. Like, do we only say that we commit to Black lives? We only commit to equity and justice when it's comfortable for us? Because it goes back to what your question was, which is, we said COVID and COVID transformed our workplaces and we want to speak up and that's great. But then racial injustice happens and the protests happen and the change making happens. What do you do then? Because you have been socialized your entire life to not talk about race, because you live in neighborhoods where you don't see any of this happening to yourself, because of all of those reasons, you feel as a leader that you are not empowered to say anything. Plus, you worry that it is all about politics and you worry that you are going to ruffle feathers of whether it's your shareholders or your investors or the people that you work with. And so you prioritize them. But then you forget about all of the other people who are living in this nightmare right now, Hmm. who are feeling and seeing the videos and feeling that their lives are worthless and who still have to show up to your Zoom meetings. What about them? Are you not going to think about them as well? And so that is my question to every leader who did not say anything, either in May or two weeks ago. What are you standing up for? And I especially mean that to the people who didn't say anything two weeks ago. What exactly does justice look like to you? What organization are you creating? What norms are you setting? What is this workplace to you? If it is not one centered on equity and justice, then what is it? And if it is one centered on equity and justice, then you got to speak. You got to stand up. You got to say words. You got to actually come out and talk about it. And, you know, so you don't make the same mistake that our Wells Fargo friend did. You got to learn and you have to be willing to get uncomfortable. And then when you get uncomfortable, I, my favorite clients this year have all been CEOs who are willing to go that extra mile to not only do the work, but then to take the risks and say, you know what, we're going to piss some people off. Mm -hmm. Some people are not going to feel like they shouldn't, you know, they don't want to hear about this. They don't want to talk about this, right? Then this space isn't for them. And that's the standard that they are setting because this is your company and that's the standard. So that's my answer. I mean, and this is the challenge. I go back to why I ask, what is your why? Why are you doing this? If it's just for the PR and the headlines, then congratulations. You're going to speak up when it's easy and you will not speak up when it's hard. But if you are doing this for real change, then you got to speak up when it's hard as well. You mentioned some of the great clients that you work with this year and, you know, feel free to change names or, you know, don't <laughs> mention specifics, but give me an example. And maybe not just this year, maybe dur- during the course of your career and, and working in your business, give me an example of a, of a client or organization where you walked away after that experience or mm. ongoing work and said, yep, this is, why, this is why I do, this is why I do what I do. Um, I, I don't disclose names of any of my clients, well, particular work for my clients, but mm-hmm. I can share with you some of the wins, right? Because the wins are what we think about and the wins are good. Yeah. It's the clients who decide not that they are just going to recruit at um, HBCUs, right? Everyone thinks that that's an easy thing to do. 
it's the clients who then actually send out an actual, you know, training proposal or memorandum or whatever it is and say, we are going to recruit at these lower rank schools, lower rank, you can't see me, I'm doing this in like, you know, quotation marks. And when we go to these schools, here's how we are going to present our company. And here are the people who we want to bring on board to do this. And when we go and do that, here is the actual, you know, when you when they ask questions about what we are doing, here are the statements that we would like to make. We are going to make our company relevant to a different culture. We are not just going to go out and say, okay, well, here's our company, here's our big company, enjoy it we are actually going to engage and look and act and feel and talk and speak and talk about values and recognize the values that matter. So that's the kind of investment in recruiting I love to see. And I've had a couple of clients who do that. The other thing that I'd love to see on the other side are ones who create not just employee resource groups, because everyone does affinity groups, but actually let them do the work, right? <laughs> so you have these employee resource groups. And so what they put together are really great position statements and really great research and really great, here are the things that we need to do to succeed. And then what you do as a leader is that you assign different executives to make sure that each of those position statements and each of those ideas, one leader is in charge of making sure they get flushed out then that leader is in charge of finding people, including themselves, who can be held accountable and who can design something, who can build it out. Again, it starts with leaders. And so when the leader is the one who does that, that's what makes that those proposals successful. So that is the second thing that I'd love to see. And then the last thing I'd love to see, and again, this is about leadership accountability, mm -hmm. is when we talk about how there's no one to hire, there's no one to recruit. I love my companies who are doing something like this. They are putting it on that person or that team lead or that department head or those VPs to go out and diversify your own networks. You have to go out and find people who are at your peer level, who are at your recruiting level and do the work to figure out how can you expand your network yourself, right? Again, you aren't putting it on your HR team. You're not putting it on the external recruiter that you hired. You are putting it on yourself. So those are the things I love to hear. And then, I mean, across the board, I do so many trainings. What I have loved to hear is that they are continuing the conversation, right? Yeah. What I have loved to hear is that we have Black employees who feel like they are heard. We have queer employees who feel like they are being included. We have transgender employees who get benefits that are actually benefiting them. Those are the changes that I love to hear about as well. And that's the work I love to do. So... Why should we pick up a copy? We've been listening to this ah, interview. And it's, you know, it's been great. And, you know, some people are like, yeah, Michelle, I love this or I love the work or I feel encouraged by what you say, or even I'm a little scared of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Why should we pick up a copy of Authentic Diversity, How to Change the Workplace for Good? Because you do not want me to come back here in 10 years and do the same conversation again. Because I am tired and I know the person's listening to us are tired and I know y'all want change. You pick up this book because here is a handbook to get change done. You put these into place and here are tools and then you measure that success. And then you can say, here is the progress we have made towards these goals. So if you don't know how to get started and it's just a start, that's what this book is for. So I hope you pick it up. I hope you read it. I hope you keep it by your bedside table. I hope you leave me reviews about the book. Leave them on Amazon. Leave them on Goodreads. Please do that work because I want something. I don't want to come back again and say this exact same thing again and again and again um, because we can change this and we absolutely can. And what the last four months have shown us is that if we have companies that prioritize it, then they can do the work. Michelle, I call this shameless plug time at the end of the podcast. Give me all, all the URLs, all the handles, all the ways ah. that you want to be found and connected to. 
If you just search for Michelle Silverthorne on Google, you will find literally every way, but michellesilverthorne.com, that's my website, at in with Michelle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and please find me on LinkedIn because I post a ton of stuff there. So I'm just Michelle Silverthorne on LinkedIn, and those are all the different ways that you can find me. And I love, love, love hearing from my community. So please, please, please always reach out to me. We'll drop all of that in the show notes so that you can be just one click away and so that you won't have any excuse. Really love this conversation. I feel like we could have gone on for an hour or so, but that's why you need to buy the book and, and check out Michelle's Ted talk and all of her work online so that you can get more of this uh, authentic diversity goodness. So Michelle, thanks so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation with Michelle Silverthorne, author of the new book, Authentic Diversity, How to Change the Workplace for Good. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope the conversation moved you to the place where you were asking some deep questions about you and your work and the spaces in which you lead. Left some links in the show notes so that you can follow up with Michelle so that you can get your copy of Authentic Diversity and you can keep track of the work that Michelle is doing. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Walk Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.